Good morning. Welcome to Houghton Wesleyan Church. Would you please stand and join me in the call to worship as we read responsively. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us to come together to worship you this morning. I pray that our worship would be from the heart and would be honoring to you. Thank you for the freedom that we have to worship in this country. Lord, I pray this morning for our brothers and sisters around the world in many countries where they don't enjoy that same freedom. Would you give them great strength and joy in the face of suffering? In Jesus' name, amen.
powerful reason to give thanks. All that God has done for us in Christ. It's so great to see you here in worship today. Uh, the special day of we celebrate fathers. Take a moment, share a word of greeting and welcome with those who are here in worship this morning. We do hope that you have the opportunity to uh, spend some time with family today on this, uh, this special day and pray that uh, that time would be very positive. And if they're not here, at least have the opportunity to connect uh, through phone or uh, maybe through uh, emails. Uh, we also, also, just a few things I want to highlight in the life of the church. Um, next Sunday, we start our summer Sabbath schedule. So we have one worship service at 10 o'clock. And that will continue on into August, so please note that change in the schedule. Also tonight at 7 o'clock, you're invited to the baccalaureate service at Fillmore Central School. It will be held there in the auditorium this evening, 7 o'clock, and you see information in the bulletin about that. There are other upcoming events throughout the next few weeks and even into the next few months. And uh, there's some information in the bulletin about that, and I hope that you'll be able to participate in as many of those things as possible. Well, there are many things that are to pray about as we come together every week, and today is no different, uh, issues related to us personally as well as things around the world, and we especially want to continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in places of the world where they don't have, the, as Ella said, they don't have the, the privilege of being able to come together and worship as, as we do, and uh, to pray for God's strength and blessing upon each of them.
We have a reason to celebrate our God and brings great joy to us. One of the uh, one of the ways in which we celebrate God is His grace to us. As we struggle in our lives, living for Him, following Him, uh, there are times when we fall short. And so as we gather together in this place and as we now turn to the prayer of confession, we, uh, we offer our prayer of confession knowing that God is loving and good and uh, we celebrate His grace in our lives. So let us join together in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Almighty God, you love us, but we have not loved you. You call, but we have not listened. We walk away from neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. We subtly condone evil, prejudice, warfare, and greed. God of grace, help us to admit our sin, so that as you come to us in mercy, we may repent, turn to you, and receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. The Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 29, verses 13 through 16. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, Who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, You did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? Would you please stand for the Gloria Patri? Father, you've given us all things. Thank you for the privilege of bringing back a portion to give to you as a demonstration of our thankful hearts. We pray that you would use it and multiply it for the advancement of your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
have the opportunity to offer our prayers to God corporately. As we pray, if you would like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we resonate with the words of Charles Wesley. If we had a thousand tongues, we would give them all in praise to you. We see how you you transform lives, how you, you bring the dead to life. You work miraculously in the lives of people you have created and love. Father, we come today and we celebrate the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Forgive us so many times when we take for granted all that Christ has done for us. And forgive us when we take for granted the power of our prayers. This morning we come in humble adoration. We we humbly come today seeking you and pouring out our hearts to you. And we know and believe that you hear us. Father, this morning... We thank you for hearing our prayers, for the burdens and the concerns of our lives. We come today realizing that there are many among us and those connected to us who are grieving today. We pray for the comforting power of your spirit in each heart. We come today acknowledging that there are many among us who are wrestling with issues of health. And we pray for your healing power in each of them. Lord, we pray not only for ourselves, but for this world. We pray especially today for our brothers and sisters who wrestled with persecution and opposition, most of which we know little, if anything, about. We pray especially for our brothers and sisters in Eritrea. We think especially of these these men who have come and felt a call to, to be ordained into the Christian ministry and have been arrested and incarcerated. We pray that you would give them courage. We pray that they would know you through your Holy Spirit in a powerful way right now where they are. Help the light of Christ to so so shine in their lives that in these very difficult circumstances and in a very difficult place, they would bear witness to you. Help them to know that you are with them. And when they may be tempted to feel that they are alone and perhaps deserted, remind them that you are there, that we are praying for them. And may their witness inspire us in our witness. Father, on this day when we have, that we've set aside to honor earthly fathers, we thank you for the gift of family. We recognize that for all of us, the idea of fathers will have a variety of, of emotions and feelings for us. For some The word Father brings images of love and joy and security. For some this day may be a source of pain and struggle and even a sense of grief. Father, 
whatever circumstances may relate to us. Fill us with a sense of your presence in our family, in our homes, and help us more than anything else to know you as our loving Heavenly Father. And for those of us who are fathers, help us to live so close to you that we continually reveal you to our children, in our homes, in our relationships, wherever we may be, through the power of Christ. Father, we offer our prayer in the name of, through the power of, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer in which we now join together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Would you please stand for the reading of the gospel, please? Luke 15, 1-32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner. Who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. 
He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my, with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Please be seated. Father, we are grateful for your presence with us. We ask that you would open our hearts this morning so that we can hear from you. Amen. Several months ago, I uh, I read this little book by Tim Keller called The Prodigal God, and it really challenged me. and it challenged my thinking with regard to this, this uh, parable that we're talking about. And also, as I read, it reminded me of my friend Carlos Gildemeister. We've been friends a long time, and we know each other's stories. And in the parable, Jesus begins by saying a man had two sons. And, and Carlos had sort of the younger son, prodigal-type experience of coming to faith. He came to faith late in his teens, and I know that many of you also have that same, same kind of story of encountering and understanding God's love for you at a later time in your life. And because of that, you have a clear sense of the contrast, that sort of the before and after picture, what my life was like before I knew Jesus and what it's like now. And I envy that a little bit, right? I don't have that. My own experience is more like that of the older son. Now, my mom tells me, that I gave my life to Jesus as a young child, like four or five years old. 
And I'm sure that the life of crime that I gave up at that point, you know, I'm sure that was significant and all, but I, I just don't remember it. And I've always lived with the awareness of God's love and the understanding that Jesus' sacrifice made possible my relationship with the Father. And I just wonder sometimes what it would be like to know that contrast. Now, Soren Kierkegaard said that if you live in a place where being a Christian is the norm, it's an accepted, the accepted way, and the first thing that you have to do in order to help someone become a Christian is to help them lose their Christianity, right? You have to separate the trappings of religion from the core meaning, what's important. In his time, if you walk down the street and you, and you stop somebody and you said, hey, are you a Christian? They would say, of course I am. I, I'm a Danish citizen. I, I was born here. I go to the state church down the road and I even sing in the choir. Right? But, but we know, don't we, that simply being born in a certain place like Houghton, being born here and attending Houghton Wesleyan Church every week and even singing in the choir, those are not what makes us a Christian. Now, in addition to the Prodigal God book, there are two other books that, kinda, uh, that I read in preparation for this sermon and it informed what I'm doing, and I recommend these highly. This is Henry Nowen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And both the Prodigal God and this book are in our library here, if you want to read them afterward. And... Um, this little book called Telling the Truth by Frederick Beekner is a fantastic book, all easy reads, and I highly recommend these uh, to you if you want to do more reading afterward. Now, we just read this passage, so I won't take time to do it again, but I want you to see an important detail here. In the first three verses, Luke is giving a description of what's going on. He says, The tax collectors and the sinners had gathered to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were there and they complained about it. They said, uh, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And so Jesus responds to them by telling them these three parables. So there are two groups of people here in front of Jesus on this bright, dusty, hot, first century Palestine day. And they exist at two ends of the religiosity spectrum, if that's a word, the moral spectrum. There are people who know they are far from God. They're the sinners the addicts, the prostitutes, the criminals, the politicians. <laughs> and on the other end of the spectrum, there are those who've grown up in the church. They've gone to the best schools. They're pastors and priests. They're professors of religion. They've never had so much as a detention or a parking ticket or any other blemish on their personal moral record. These are people who know they are doing what they're supposed to do. Now, just out of curiosity, where would you put yourself on that spectrum? <laughs> and you don't have to say it out loud. Uh, and I know that we can't really reduce people to a number, right? We're more complex than that. But just for the sake of argument, let's say it was a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being the most lost sinner you can think of, and 10 being the most moral, best spiritual person you can, you can think of, where are you? What's your number? So anyway, there's two groups of people. And I think it's interesting and it's important to remember that it's the complaint from the Pharisees that prompts Jesus to tell these stories. In the first two parables, Jesus is emphasizing God's joy when a lost one is found. The shepherd searches for the lost sheep, and the woman searches for the lost coin. And they demonstrate that God is in the business of pursuing the lost and celebrating their return. But it's in the third parable, the parable of the lost son, that the story takes an unexpected twist. And this parable is a drama in two acts. And the first act is the well-known prodigal son. As we just read, the younger son comes to his dad one day and he says, in effect, Dad, I am tired of waiting for you to die so that I can get my money. Give me what's mine. I am out of here. It would be hard to think of a more insulting, demeaning, arrogant, painful thing 
that a young man could say to his father. And more surprisingly, instead of a beating or a, or a summary execution or a phone call to the lawyer to write him out of the will, the father, at, inexplicably, at great cost to himself, does what the younger son asks. He, he must have had to sell off a large amount of holdings to give him that cash, and he did it. Now, Beekner describes what follows in this way, and I love how he says this. He says, The prodigal son goes off with his inheritance and blows the whole pile on liquor and sex and fancy clothes until finally he doesn't have two cents left to rub together, and he has to go to work or starve to death. He gets a job on a pig farm and keeps at it long enough to observe that the pigs are getting a better deal than he is. And then he decides to go home. Now there's nothing edifying about his decision. There's no indication that he realizes he's made a donkey of himself and broken his old man's heart. No indication that he thinks of his old man as anything more than a meal ticket. There's no sign that he's sorry for what he's done or that he's resolved to make amends somehow and do better next time. He decides to go home for the simple reason that he knows he always got three squares a day at home. And for a man who is in danger of starving to death, that is reason enough. So he sets out on the return trip. And on the way, he rehearses the speech that he hopes will soften the old man's heart enough so that at least he won't get the door slammed in his face. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That'll hit him where he lives, if anything will, the boy thinks, and he goes over it again. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Trying to get the inflection right and the gestures right, and just about the time he thinks he has it down, the old man spots him coming around the corner below the tennis court and starts sprinting down the drive like a maniac. Before the boy has time to get so much as the first word out, The old man throws his arms around him and all but knocks him off his feet with the tears and the whiskers and the incredulous laughter of his welcome. The boy is back. That's all that matters. Who cares why he's back? And the old man doesn't do what any other father under heaven would have been inclined to do. He doesn't say he hopes he has learned his lesson or I told you so. He doesn't say he hopes he's finally ready to settle down for a while and find some way to make it up to his mother. He just says... Bring him something to eat, for God's sake. Bring him some warm clothes to put on. And when the boy finally manages to slip his prepared remarks in edgewise, the old man doesn't even hear them. He's in such a state. All he can say is, the boy was dead, and he's alive again. The boy was lost, and he's found again. And then, at the end of the scene, what Jesus says is, they begin to make merry. Merry of all things. They turn on the stereo, they break out the best scotch, they roll back the living room rug, and they ring up the neighbors. They're obviously not Wesleyan. (laughs) So as in the two parables that precede this one, the lost sheep and the lost coin, the father throws a party. This younger son has rejected the father and humiliated him left home and wasted fully one half of the father's considerable goods. And all of this in a fruitless and empty search for himself. And even as he returns, the younger son's motives for coming home may be a bit suspect. Now one says there's repentance, but not a repentance in the light of the immense love of a forgiving God. It's a self-serving repentance that offers the possibility of survival. The father, however, seems not to care one fig about motives, about money, about his own dignity, or the previous offense. He says, it's time to celebrate. This son of mine was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and he's found. And so the party begins. It's a fantastic picture of unconditional love, of redemption, of grace. God the Father welcomes home the lost sinner into his kingdom. One person that I talked to this past week said, which of us hasn't pictured ourselves as the lost son in this, in this story at one time or another? And I think God's grace towards sinners is the point of the parable, except for one small caveat. This is not a message for the sinners that are in Jesus' audience that day. This series of parables is aimed directly at the religious leaders, 
the Pharisees and the scribes, the elder brother types. So let's move on to act two, the elder brother. Now, when the prodigal returns, the elder brother is exactly where he's supposed to be. He's out in the field, on the tractor, doing the work of the father. And he's driving along on the tractor and he suddenly becomes aware of a sound that's been intruding on his consciousness. Is that music? He stops the tractor and he listens. That's definitely music. So he drives the tractor over to the hill that overlooks the ranch house and he looks down and sure enough, there are cars all over the lawn. It's clearly music going on. There's, the grill is, up, is fired up out back and there's something big cooking on it. There's something, what is going on? So he flags down a passing ranch hand. And he says, hey, what's going on down at the house? Your brother has come home. He's back. And your dad threw a huge party. He's even, we're even uh, cooking up that beef cow that we've been saving for your graduation. You know, from seminary. Oh man, anger. Verse 28 says, the older brother is angry and he won't go in. He drives that tractor down to the barn and he parks it in the barn. And as daylight falls, he sits down on a bale of hay in the barn and he, and he mutters and he complains and he won't go in. He remains on the outside and we say, wait a minute. What just happened here? The younger brother who is rebellious, who is admittedly sinful, who has dubious motives... He's part of the kingdom. He's in the father's party. And the elder brother who has never disobeyed, who has in his own words slaved for the father, he's out. What is this? In contrasting these two stories, Jesus is flipping on its head what we know about sin. Tim Keller says, nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most immoral person. The elder son is excluded from the father's party, from the kingdom. He excludes himself. And why does he do it? What's his reason for not going in? He gives it in verse 29. He says, all these years I've been slaving for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. It's his perfect moral record, his accomplishments, his shiny new master's degree. These are the things that stand between him and God. His words are very telling. The father calls him son and he calls himself slave. He's rejecting relationship with the father in favor of his list of accomplishments. And so it turns out that the two sons are not all that different after all. The younger son wants the stuff, the blessings that the father can give him, and so he asks for it. The elder son wants the blessings the father can give him, and so he works for it. Both want the blessings of the father, but neither seem to care very much about the father himself. Now again, I imagine this scene, and Jesus standing in front of the sinners who are described in the first part of the chapter, and, you know, the morally bankrupt, and they're sitting there, and it's interesting because at the end of chapter 14, Jesus is telling parables. In his very last line, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And in the very first line of chapter 15, it says, The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. And so Jesus is standing there looking at these, this group of people, and they're looking up at him, and they're drinking in his words, because like Peter, they know, where else can we go? You have the words of life. And off to the side, standing under the shade of that building right there, there are the scribes and Pharisees. And they're close enough so that they can hear what's being said, but not so close that they'll be associated with anyone in that particular crowd. And they're muttering, and they're complaining, and they're angry, and they're refusing to go in. And Jesus hears them and he launches into the parables and he talks about the shepherd who loses the sheep and he leaves the 99 and he pursues the sheep 
And he brings it back safely and has a great party to celebrate. And the woman loses her coin and she pulls out all the stops. And this is a coin that has both sentimental value as well as monetary value. And she says, we're going to find this thing. And she searches and searches until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls in the neighbors. And they have a party. And I imagine Jesus, as he's telling the story, slowly shifting his orientation until he's now looking at the scribes and Pharisees. And he launches into the parable of the lost son. And he says, he tells the story of the lost son. And, but which son is it that's lost here? Which son is being pursued? It's not the younger son. He's come home. He's in the party. It's not the people who are sitting here for the purpose of listening to Jesus. They're right where they're supposed to be. The shepherd pursues the lost sheep. The woman pursues the lost coin. And the father, again, flying in the face of dignity, of tradition, and of honor, goes out into the field, in verse 28, and pursues the elder brother. And I imagine Jesus now standing with his hand extended to the Pharisees and saying, Come into the kingdom. He's appealing to the the people that are trying to kill him. And he's saying, give up your pride. Release your faith in your heritage. This life of joyless duty and arrogant sort of moral drudgery. And embrace relationship with the Father. I think we are less inclined, at least I know I am, less inclined to see myself in in the elder brother. I mean, it's, it's not a pretty picture, right? We, but I think that if we're honest, we can sometimes see his marks in our life. His footprint can be seen there. Especially, I think, if we've grown up in a church and we don't have a good sense of the contrast, the before and after contrast. Now it says there are many elder brothers who are lost while still at home. And it's a lostness characterized by judgment and condemnation, anger and resentment, bitterness and jealousy, These things that are so pernicious and so damaging to the human heart. And the elder brother shows up in us in ways like this. When we see, for example, very clearly the sins of others. The elder brother says, this son of yours who has wasted all of your money on prostitutes. When we see others' sins, and we're quick to note our own pretty good record in comparison. And in time, that line of thinking brings us to the point where we even question whether or not certain people or certain people who have committed certain sins should really even be part of who we are. We We just prayed together, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. As we forgive our debtors. Not not sort of while we're attempting to do that, but in the same way, to the same degree that we forgive our debtors. The elder brother's inability to forgive produced in himself the inability to be forgiven. He excludes himself. When we sit in judgment on others, we exclude ourselves from the love of the Father. But when we relinquish our need to sit in judgment, we free ourselves from that weight. And we can fully embrace the forgiveness that God the Father offers to us through Jesus. The elder brother also shows up in us connected to our sense of fairness and achievement. My father passed away several years ago after a a long battle uh, with a painful illness. And uh, watching him go through that was really painful. It was hard at times. And there were times when I was angry with God. I remember questioning the fairness of it all. Telling God about my father's long record of serving him and You know, why is this, how is this fair? But do you see the implications in that line of thinking? God, all these years we have slaved for you. The elder brother's theology of merit-based salvation forced him to be stuck outside the party. He said, that's not fair. Your grace is not fair. And so despite the father's pleas for him to set aside his self-righteousness, And to be welcomed in, to be loved, to be part of the kingdom, he refuses. And at the end of the story, 
you know, I really want there to be a verse 33 because we don't know what happens. As far as we know, he's still sitting in the barn. We don't know if he ever comes in. C.S. Lewis said uh, in The Great Divorce, he said, in the end there will be two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, your will be done. Now the younger brother here is a beautiful picture of redemption. And human beings are designed for relationship with the Father. And rejecting that design results only in empty brokenness, isolation, pain. God's ridiculous, unreasonable, all-encompassing, unconditional love for humans who turn to him leaps off the page in stark neon clarity in the first act of this parable. And if you are far from God, God is waiting for you with open arms. For the elder brother in us and among us, God is calling you and I to give up our need to sit in judgment on people around us. To forsake our merit-generating good works and our faith-brutalizing theological accuracy. To let go of our stellar moral record, all of which have the potential to simply become attempts to manipulate God. Instead, our Heavenly Father is calling us to warm, joyful relationship with Him. He says, rejoice with me when the lost sheep is found. Celebrate when a sinner comes to repentance. Let's have a party. As in the parable, the Father's hand is extended to you. What will you do?
receive the benediction. Know that your heavenly Father loves you. May you live this week in the joy of that relationship. Amen.